Welcome to If You've Come This Far. This is the podcast that Sean and I do where we try to have authentic conversations with people who are in some way trying to make the world better than they found it. And um, I say this about every episode, um, but it doesn't mean that I'm not being authentic and genuine when I say it, but I really, really love this guest. Um, um, Sean, uh, you've known David for long with me. Why don't you... Uh, Tell the listeners who. Yeah, well, when you yeah, when you say we try to have authentic conversations with people, does that mean like you're coming in maybe not being authentic, or you're concerned about the guest <laughs> being authentic? Because trying implies that maybe you're struggling with the whole thing. But you seem very authentic to me every time we're together. You know, there's I, nothing that seems I, like you're faking anything. I feel like if you say that we do, like if you were to say we have authentic and interesting conversations, that sounds pretentious because other people might be like, dude, I just listened to that episode. And, it was not that um, and in fact, I thought about this the other day. I thought I'm just going to drop the whole interesting thing because if if we weren't trying yeah. to have interesting conversations, well, why why would we be even? Yeah, out our lead in sucks, really. We need to read re- 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 the whole yeah, thing about yeah, what we're yeah. even doing. I just keep telling people, oh, you and I were together and we just wanted to invite other people to come talk to us. Dave Haskin is not a rando. and not at, uh, not at all. So our relationship with Dave, Men Living has partnered up with Dave, has uh, had a program for over 20 years in Wisconsin called Mindful Man, where uh, a couple times a year, men were coming together for a uh, silent retreat, silent meditation retreat. And um, he's kind of transitioning in his life and what he wants to do and is still. So what we're doing is we're partnering with him. And and now what we're doing is we call it Mindful Men Living. And we're doing these meditation treat, uh, retreats twice a year. Um, but, you know, the first time I met David, fascinating guy, as the listeners will hear, how kind of his, his uh, life arc, um, what he's been through, where he is. And... For me in particular, I look at the whole nature of mindfulness as very foundational to uh, living fully. So I'm going so I'm going to be an advocate for it, and um, you know, getting Dave on to talk about this, I think um, we'll get. If people are curious about that, we'll give them some new insight because um, he's been at it for a long time and is a really um, what did you call? Yeah, I mean, you you. Uh, oh, wonderful I, man, beautiful man, would you, all those things. All you really, those things. But I yeah. think I also said to you the other day, and this I think goes to the to the notion of life not being about the an end game. It's really about yeah. the journey. And yeah. just by virtue of the uh, of Dave David, like he's worked so hard at living fully for many decades or for years. I don't want to, I don't want to offend David. He's not that old, but for, for he's been at this longer. And so I think I said to you, I said, I felt, I feel like he's like a, an elder. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so now when we do the retreats, I mean, he's, he's doing the Dharma talk, the Dharma talks, he is a Buddhist. Um, you know, it's not necessarily a Buddhist retreat, but there are elements of it. Um, and uh, yeah, his message—I mean, his messaging is is just beautiful. And you know, he, he said living fully. You know, one of the things that he would say is, you know, letting go of shit, which you know, I couldn't—I couldn't agree more. Is mm-hmm. a huge part of of living fully, unburdened. I I think uh, people are really going to love him, and and I'm glad that we're sharing him with uh, our listeners. Yeah, and I cannot wait to uh, 
to get to one of these silent retreats that that you guys are uh, are leading um, and spend some time with them, even in silence. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see you being silent for oh, you know. <laughs> I mean, cheap, cheap shot, cheap shot. What? What? <laughs> what? No. I'm just you know, it could be challenging for some people. Oh, maybe more no challenging doubt. for others. What? I've, I've never done one of these things, and I oh. I can be a little chatty, but I also have a huge introverted side that might really relish in in just sh shutting up not yeah. talking or by the way the other benefit of a silent retreat is no one else talks either right so right. Just, yeah. just saying I'm no yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no you're not not at all all right well listen before we devolve any further let's uh let's yeah. get to david haskins here he is so uh dave meet chris chris meet dave hi dave hi, chris Dave, do you go by Dave or David? Uh, professionally, I've always gone by David. I was a journalist, so that was my byline. But I don't, I don't much care. Oh, okay. David so, would be most consistent, I guess. But I think that this this shows us two things: a that Sean is not very professional, um, as he calls you Dave, and b I call myself Dave. That's funny. okay. Yeah, so easy, easy, easy. Back up a bit. Oh boy, I was calling him David. That, but then he was signing his emails Dave, and I'm like, oh, then he must prefer Dave. So easy. I'm with. I hear you. I hear well, you. Sure. Well, the other thing is, I don't know. Well, obviously, you and I just met. David. Um, and so there's a lot I don't know about you, but this little tidbit you just threw in there about having had been a journalist, that's that's a that's a sorted past that we may have to dig into. <laughs> right, Sean? I mean uh, we're, bit, David's here to we're gonna David, is that all right, Chris? Are you all right? That is <laughs> is we're gonna dig in all all aspects of, of David Haskins. So no, but just but just let me say, um and Dave, David, we'll talk about this in the uh, in the intro, but um, just for you, Chris, I mean, David and I uh, co-led a meditation retreat with Tony Schmidt at the beginning of December. Um, really, my first opportunity to be in person with Dave, and uh, I'm just going to go back and forth between yeah, Dave yeah. and Dave. And and it's one of those things about Zoom because we had had like five or six Zoom calls together preparing for it, and then I get there and Dave's like really tall. And and I'm like, oh. okay, I'm really, I'm really short. Um, and so, yeah, it was one of those things. Oh, now, you know, you get to experience the person in real life. Um, but, but the whole nature of the, of the meditation retreat is David's done this program, which we're going to talk about mindful men for over 20 years. Um, and, and now with kind of the concept of mindfulness as a thread running through men living, um, we've developed a partnership and, and are going to do, at, I think at least um, two, two meditation retreats together a year. Um, but but David's got an interesting background and the work that he's doing today is really interesting. And I thought uh, we could just have a great, since we're all about talking with interesting people, we could have a great conversation. So yeah, I'm, fi I'm fired up. Uh, uh, and uh, looking forward myself to getting onto one of these meditation retreats, which I'd love to hear I'd love to hear you guys talk about like what for those of us who haven't been on one, what what is it? How does it go? Right. Um, before I get there, though, David, are, where you're in Wisconsin, is that I just want to know where you're located in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I'm about uh, 35 miles west of Madison. Oh, OK. I uh, my wife and I raised our family in Madison. And then when the youngest one left, we left and moved out here. 
Um, so you can see behind me the beginnings of the woods. We live right in the middle of the woods. Yeah, I mean the listener can't see what I'm seeing, but 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 that what little I can see does look like the middle of Wisconsin. <laughs> well, I think you were going for the middle of nowhere, weren't you? No, no, when you, not when at all. Left, no, 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 no. When he left Madison, no, he was going. I mean, oh, his I see, neighbors, I see. yeah, right, yeah. Right? And uh, I don't know for the middle of nowhere, but we're definitely out of town. You uh -huh. know, I, I. Uh, Grew up in cities. I was born and lived my first 12 years in Chicago. Uh, graduated from high school in Pittsburgh. But then I came out to Wisconsin for school and um, I kept getting uh, smaller and smaller till, uh, as I tell my New York friends, I live in a town that's twice the size of Manhattan with a population of a thousand. Wow. Isn't that wild? That's crazy. Um, are you, um, given your, your, where you've been in, during your life, are you torn between the Bears and the Packers, or do you just not, not at all? Shit? No, not at all. Um, <laughs> which means you're a Bears fan or a Packers fan? No, I grew up a Bears fan actually. Back in the day, I remember, and this is uh, predates you guys back in 1963 when the Bears made it to uh, the what was then pre pre Super Bowl, the NFL championship game. And uh, TV was blacked out in Skokie, where we were living at the time. I uh, forced my father to take me to Indiana so I could watch the game on TV. No, no which, kidding. Which they lost. But <laughs> <laughs> which which they're really good at. They're really good at disappointing their fans. They, yeah. they, have, they have been for a while now, it sounds like. Hey, uh, I, I watched the game. Uh, I'm more of a football hobbyist, not a yeah. huge fan, but... Um, I watched the game uh, yesterday, and the Bears are good. They're going to be yeah. good if they could just get some consistent uh, leadership at the top and not discard people like Fields, who yeah. has the potential to be, I think, a very, very good quarterback. I yeah. agree. Yeah, I agree. Put, put an offensive well, line in front of that guy and, and yeah. look out, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was a big difference, I think, between yesterday, obviously. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, part of it is uh, they bring quarterbacks in, and that's a real complex thing to be an NFL quarterback. And that's why I think Jordan Love is doing so well. He sat on his butt for three years and learned. Yeah. 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 Well, Sean, how do you feel about us starting with you and David describing what a retreat is like? Or did you have someplace else you wanted to go? Yeah, no, I think that's good. I think, I think, I think having Dave uh, talk about that would be a great place to start. So yeah, so what is what is the experience? And and I, I would imagine like when you go, I know a little bit about sort of your training, David, like is, it's called Plum Village in, uh, in France. Time, yeah. yeah, which is probably very different than when you go to Sean's house and and, and lead a retreat there. I don't remember where you guys were when you had your retreat. We were in, we were in Wisconsin, actually. You were in Wisconsin, that, okay. Yeah. So I'm sure that these are very different things, but like, let, let, so let, let's, uh, given that you guys want to do at least two of these a year, what is that, what is the experience like for someone like me who's never been on one? Well, I, I would say um, there's a lot of meditation of a certain type. Um, you know, a lot of people think, well, meditation is I'm just kind of chilling with my thoughts. And chilling with thoughts is a great thing, but that's not meditation as we uh, practice it, um, which might be called uh, mindfulness meditation. So in mindfulness 
meditation, um, let me back up a little bit. There's mm -hmm. a, a real body-focused orientation to this type of meditation. And the reason being that our bodies are always in the present moment, but our minds rarely are. Um, and instead, our minds are in the past, in the future, shaming, blaming, rehashing, explaining, you know, all the things that our minds do that take us away from the present moment, which is, is often said, the present moment is the only moment we're alive. Mm. It's the only moment we can feel what's really uh, happening. Um, so we meditate not to force ourselves into the present moment, but rather to notice what's going on with us and then to come back to the present moment in our bodies. And specifically, it's uh, within the body, it's breath-focused. Uh, mm -hmm. um, it's not to help us relax. It's not to help us attain a certain state of mind, like being quiet, you know, having a still mind, although that often results, but often it doesn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> often we have what's called uh, monkey mind. You know, we're agitated. Our mind is yak, 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 yak. Um, so we're not, um, and that's just part of having a human mind. That That's what happens. But if we aren't mindfully aware of what's happening, we get lost. And we act automatically out of uh, what I call our conditioning, out of uh, how we were raised to be and all the conditioning that happened before we were born. So we meditate a lot. And that's just um, a matter of strengthening the muscle of mindfulness, mindful awareness. And um, the uh, it's not always pleasant. And especially men get into this sense of, oh, my mind's too busy to, to do that. I can't do that. When in fact, if you're aware enough to know your mind is busy, you're doing it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, it's just a matter of short-circuiting its ability to uh, run the show. Maybe it's one way of putting it. So we meditate a lot. We meditate in different forms. We do sitting meditation, uh, walking meditation. Um, at the uh, uh, Mindful Men Living Retreat, we do Qigong, which is a form of embodied meditation. Um, and it's all about coming back to the present moment with whatever is going on with the, within us. Uh, this is interesting. I, I was thinking about this this morning. So I have a couple of years ago, this is, I don't know why I'm going into this level of detail, but a couple of years ago, I got Manisha, my wife, a Peloton bike for her 50th birthday. We won't go there. It was, it was advised by a good friend of hers, Kathy. Um, she's, she's not gotten on it much. I love it. But, but, but I bring that up because Peloton also offers some guided meditation. And I, I was thinking this morning in the shower, uh, looking forward to our call with you, that I, 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 one way I could describe my meditation practice recently is almost like microdosing meditation. So it's like finding, making sure I have five to 10 minutes between meetings so that I can go and just do a five minute, you know, sitting in my office chair with my feet on the ground meditation. Um, I, I bring that up because you talk about all these different ways and I've always heard people say, well, there's no wrong way to meditate. Um, is that is that true or is that are we just trying to make each other feel good when we say that <laughs> um i think it's true i think um the underlying question is what is it you're trying to do with the meditation if right. um 
you know, I go in prison and teach meditation. And a lot of the guys, when they start, they'll think, oh, I meditate all the time. I put my earbuds in and listen to music. Mm -hmm. um, fine, that's a good thing to do. Uh, but that's not what we're trying to do um, It uh, Mindful Men Living and in, in my own personal mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. Relaxation is a wonderful thing, but we're not trying the primary purpose for this kind of meditation is not relaxation, although, as I mentioned, it often leads to that. Um, so what we're trying to do is train ourselves to be fully present with um, self-compassion and non-judgmentalness to wherever we are in the present moment. Um, and that's not always fun because <laughs> we're not always in a good place in the present moment. But you can see the difference. I mean, so the question is, what are we trying to do here? Mm. Um, relaxing is a great thing, you know, put on those earbuds and listen to music. Absolutely. But um, what we're trying to do here is something else entirely. And uh, um, it's not always relaxing, as I said. So, I, so David, I, I used this analogy uh, when we were in Wisconsin, and 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 I want you to comment on it. And it's one maybe Chris can can appreciate. So, so I look at my med my meditation practice as I do uh, hitting balls when I'm playing golf. So, mm -hmm. okay, I sit down. I have to practice if I want to get better at playing golf. Hitting balls is a good thing to do, and I kind of look at meditation not as in and of itself a thing. It's a practice for living my life. So, so when I'm when I'm what I've found in meditation over the last decade is that when I do it and I do it regularly and I'm practicing, when I'm living my life, I'm more engaged, more calm, more thoughtful, more, as Dave would say, more mindful yeah. of just how I'm living my life. And so, so like when I'm not hitting balls, my game stinks, but when I am, my game gets much better. And yeah, so that's kind of what I found is, is this practice. I, that's what it translates into for me. Yeah. Yeah. It literally is a practice. Yeah. Um, and mindfulness is the practice uh, hitting balls at the range, batting on baseball fan, batting yeah. practice. Um, it's uh, that practice. So you can go out into the world and be mindful yeah and um and uh, i think it's essential for that yeah you can go out into the world and be mindful without this but it's just uh just like sean was saying it goes better when you practice yeah and um so yes that's that's exactly it so in back to what you were saying chris um in very broad terms one way of looking at this is there's formal practice, which is the practice of, okay, it's uh, eight in the morning. I'm going to sit down till late 20 and meditate. Uh, so you do it on purpose. You go through this uh, process of grounding in the body and observing the mind, coming back to the body. Um, and then there's informal practice, which we do during the course of the day, which I think you were talking about uh, um, a lot of people trigger the informal practice off of something specific. If you're working and you're at a desk, every time the phone rings, take two breaths before you answer it. Mm -hmm. 
which I understand in a business setting can really irritate people sometimes. <laughs> but the uh, um, but then they need to practice. And but but anyway, the uh, um, or uh, in prison, we tell them every time you see somebody wearing a blue shirt, which is the color the the correctional officers wear, stop take a breath because there's a lot of antagonism between the prisoners and, and the, mm. and the correctional mm. officers. Um, every time you're sitting, you see a red light and you're sitting at the red light, not still driving, stop, take a breath or two. So that's informal practice. And mm -hmm. that's also very important, but uh, the formal practice I think is, is the foundation for a good mindfulness practice. This episode of If You've Come This Far is brought to you by Half Acre Beer Company, makers of Daisy Cutter Pale Ale and many other fine ales and lagers. Visit them at their brewery located at 2050 West Balmoral Avenue in Chicago's beautiful Bowmanville neighborhood. Am I allowed, well, Sean, am I allowed to ask David, like the the arc of like how, like how in the world, like you got to where you are? Well, of course, of course you can. You're wait. You're asking me permission all of a sudden to ask questions. <laughs> that, <laughs> no, <laughs> is this a new thing for the year? You're it's, you know for the new year resolution. It's, it's my new year's resolution. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna feign being civil to you. That's yeah, what it is. I love it. Well, yeah. and before you do that, I just want to say the other thing about and and absolutely we want to go through this with David. Um, uh, the other thing we do on the retreat that you might find interesting is it's is it silent um, and. For the most part, we're we're kind of going through what we want to do moving forward. But for the most part, the the um, the intention is for us to be silent on the retreat. So does that mean absolutely? Like when you're having lunch yes. together, you're not talking. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's see the, that's um, which that's terrifies a lot of people. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. And um, um, in a lot of people, after they've been terrified and they actually start doing this, realize what a gift it is oh. because life is so unsilent. Yes. Um, especially, you know, for folks who have jobs, who are raising, you know, still actively raising families, who are involved in um, groups, even wonderful groups like Men Living. So silence can be a gift, but even more importantly, I've long since come to the conclusion that wisdom doesn't arise from talking. What arises from talking is information. Wisdom is that information that becomes embodied. It becomes part of our muscle, muscle memory, except more mental mm -hmm. in nature. And that's where wisdom arises from. Um, talking is good. T talking is essential. And as Sean mentioned, we're still kind of getting our footing between uh, um, in the uh, Mindful Men Living retreats between um, sharing, which is, I think, essential, uh, an essential part of men's growth, yeah. but also having that silence where we can uh, water the seeds that we that we plant for each other internally. Yeah, this I mean, I, I, I just want to say, because I was on, uh, I'd been on silent retreats before, and, and we did this hybrid and you know i have it's great sharing with the guys but i was long i was longing for just shutting up the whole time because it's it's once you get into it yeah it can be a little intimidating it's 
really pretty it's really pretty cool i mean it's what you come away with after you're done is is really pretty neat i'm ready to sign up right now i i I just out of curiosity more than anything but but also i i wanted to ask is um you know a a really big part of men living's purpose and mission is is providing a way for men to connect and i think this is part of like sean's personal mantra too in, in life is connection is everything is there connection in a silent retreat? Is there some sort of like sort of supernatural unspoken connection by virtue of going through something together? Absolutely. I've, you know, often after silent retreats, I've been on many, many silent retreats. There's a real sense that I have and I've shared with others uh, or that others have shared with me, I should say, that, yeah, you're you're there in this deep, this profoundly deep place together. And there's a connection that transcends words. Now, I don't say that, I don't mean to diminish the importance of also sharing words as a different process, Um, especially men, because, you know, I've been doing men's work since the 70s. And uh, of course, one big problem that uh, we try to uh, see, understand, and and grow from is that men can be so uh, stoical, so uh, mm-hmm. separate, um, so disconnected, and the process of of uh, connecting in that way, I, th- I think, does start with words, uh, the sharing, the fact that we're, you know, human beings tend to think we're each real freaky when in fact everyone's kind of freaky in the same or similar ways. Mm-hmm. So sharing that kind of normalizes our internal attitudes about ourselves um, and is essential. It's an essential part of the process. Um, the silence helps us go deeper. You know, Sean tells me something profound about himself that, you know, uh, resonates with something I have within myself. And that um, makes me feel closer to Sean and also helps normalize within me that, oh, I'm that way too. Maybe this is a human condition, not a screwed up Dave condition. Uh And then in the silence, we can go deep with that through that meditative process that I started to outline before. We can start to go deeper with that and understand ourselves better to become far more self-aware. So I think the brilliance of Sean's vision here is that he saw that the two aren't mutually exclusive yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, they complement each other. Chris, just a note, he called me brilliant. I, you know what? I was going to highlight that too. I was going to highlight you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. It's not your first yeah. brilliant vision, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just I just want to say before that, that David's getting ready to go to uh, a month of silence uh, alone, basically alone uh, for the month of February out in, uh, out in Massachusetts. Weeks. Three weeks. Sorry. Yeah. Three weeks. Wow. Um, so which is something you do every year. I've been trying to. Uh, yeah. Of course, COVID put a crimp in that. Uh, yeah. Health put a crimp in it for a while. Is that with a program? No, it's not a structured retreat. Uh, it's out in Barrie, Massachusetts. It's uh, sponsored by a group called Insight Meditation Society. They have structured retreats with teachers and you know more what you think of as retreats. 
but they have this wonderful, incredibly wonderful purpose-built facility. Uh, they're in the middle of a thousand acres of woods, and they have this wonderful purpose-built facility, uh, purpose-built for uh, personal uh, self-guided retreats. Okay. But with a lot of supports in place. So there are two teachers on staff, and they each give a talk once a week. You uh, you visit, you know, briefly visit with each teacher uh, each week. Um, the food is superlative. Um, it's it's really um, uh, very beautifully built, but the schedule is your own, and um, I, I I think I may be an outlier on this, um, loving this these kind of retreats, but uh, I do I do love them. Well, let, let, let's 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 like maybe add the final brushstroke to the original question, like what is what is the experience of a men living yeah. in a meditation retreat like? Um, the, 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 the people that go to Barry, Massachusetts with you are probably, uh, have, have been, have been meditating for longer than the average men living retreat participant. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I'm guessing, so it, it, is it, are there points in the day when you guys are in Wisconsin where you, either one of you or Tony Schmidt, um, speaks up to give guidance on what's next or. Like surely the three of you guys can't be silent. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Dave, I mean, Dave, Dave gives a talk. Um, we, you know, there'll be some some guided meditation sessions. Okay. Um, yeah, we, you know, we talk about the schedule or what's up next. Um, but it's very, I mean, very limited. Okay. In that way, yeah, and and we we incorporated, you know, some of the men living kind of full house um, circles. Where where we were sharing and talking and and those are the pieces that we're we're reconsidering um, because they were really powerful but they you know they take away from the silence and so yeah. we're you know we're trying as we come to get mindful men and men living come together we're trying to assess kind of what we think or what what we want to offer um, to the men in the way of of an experience um, so yeah yeah. It sounds great. Um, yeah. Okay. I want to shift gears. So I, I heard yeah. two, two dates mentioned. One was the 19, 1963 when we were talking about the bears and you were obviously a kid then at that point, David, the other was, you mentioned that you've been involved in men's work since the seventies. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't, I, yeah, I'm not sure what happened there, what your upbringing was like and, and why, how and why you got involved in men's work, but would love to hear a little bit about that background. Sure. I can give you a, a thumbnail. I was, uh, as I said, born in uh, Chicago. Um, I think one of the most salient features of my personal background, because it is reverberated through my life and continues to, is the fact that my father was a Holocaust survivor hmm. and um, came here just as the uh, Nazis were advancing on his village in Lithuania, his mother and grandmother conspired to, to get him out of the country into Chicago. Um, and not long after that, they were wiped out. Uh -huh. And um, and the result of that was obviously shaped my father's life in a big way. He became naturalized and <laughs> ironically or unfairly was that as soon as he was naturalized in 1941, the, the army drafted him and he went back to Europe to fight the Nazis. Oh, no way. 
but the um um but he obviously had a lot of trauma what i didn't understand until oh it's been a while now but i didn't understand trauma so i had a lot of secondary trauma which led me to act and think in ways that weren't consistent with my background uh for all the horrible stuff my father went through he was a, generally speaking a, a loving person he could have a sharp tongue on him but nonviolent um assiduously nonviolent um loving same with my mother so given that and we were real middle class not upper middle class uh closer to lower middle class but he was he was a salesman he sold cash registers for a oh. and um um but i would act in ways that were not uh consistent with my upbringing you know a lot of rage uh, by the time I graduated high school, I was uh, an alcoholic slash addict, mm -hmm. um, which is very culturally atypical. Um, there are Jewish alcoholics and addicts, of course, but not so many. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a common trait. My parents were both teetotalers. So um, um, so anyway, I went to uh, college at uh, Madison U University of Wisconsin. And uh, in my freshman year, I um, was partying, as was my want in those days. <laughs> but it was also the Vietnam War, and it was essential to stay out of the army. Um, so I needed grades. Um, and I remember complaining to somebody at that time uh, that it was hard to study and party all night, you know, uh, well enough to get grades that kept me in college and to uh, party all night, which is was my inclination, you know, um, not every night, but many nights. And he said, I joke about this, but uh, somewhere there, there, there's some element of truth here. He said, as we said in those days, wow, man, uh, the Beatles <laughs> party all night and they meditate. They say it gives them energy. So when I was 17 years old, uh, it was toward the end of my freshman year uh, at the UW, um, I learned uh, meditation, transcendental meditation. And uh, I still didn't get sober for another 11 years after that. But, but um, I also saw what the meditation was doing to me, for me. Um, I wasn't as sharp edged. I wasn't going off on people like I always did and so on. Right after I graduated from uh, UW, I, I got married, my first wife, with whom I'm still dear friends. Um, we see each other at least once a week. Um, but she was maybe getting a little frustrated with me, quite understandably. Uh -huh. And uh, she was an ardent feminist, but unlike a lot of feminists in those days, um, she realized what was missing um, in me or one of the things among the many things that were missing was a real strong sense of um myself as a man uh not and uh a friend of hers had a husband who was in a men's group this would be 1978 so uh she said uh, in her in her inimitable way she said go get yourself in that men's group mm. and i did and I loved it. And I realized exactly why this was important, because I was living out of a lot of uh, what I don't know, we could call mythology about mm. uh, mm -hmm. about 
what it is to be a man. And um, um, so I love the men's group. Um, one reason I didn't get sober right away is they, they like to party too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but there was also that serious element of, of yep. what was going on. And um, and I grew, it grew and it grew and it grew in me. Um, and um, my first wife and I got divorced. We have a son um, who lives out in the Bay Area uh, with a son. He has a son. And um, uh, met and married my current wife. It's been 37 years. And um, Linda, my first wife, always kids my current wife that, you know, she's benefiting from... <laughs> <laughs> for pushing me into that <laughs> but but i also met somebody um let's say i met him in a retreat in 1986 uh, um a dominican brother named joe kilikevich who lives in oak park and he in i was talking to him at the retreat this wasn't a silent retreat um i was talking to him about men's work and how important i thought it was he said well funny i am in the process of starting a type of men's work that went on to be called male spirit, which is um, still operating at some level. Joe is into his 80s now. I don't think he's actively leading. Um, so I got very involved in male spirit, including as a leader. But after a while, that kind of reached the end for me. And I thought, well, you know, my own practice, by that time, my meditation practices had evolved into Buddhism. And I said, my own practice is um, mindfulness. And you go to a Buddhist retreat, and it was like 80% women. And mm. what is it, you know, all this stuff that I've been talking about in the men's work, you know, refusing to go deep or being scared to go deep, um, was keeping people away from um, um, meditation retreats. So I started Mindful Man, along with a dear friend of mine, Hal Dessel. Um, and we did Mindful Man until, what, a year or two, just a year ago or a year and a half ago, where I kind of burned out on uh, not not Mindful Man at all, but I burned out on organizing the research. Sure, sure. And so I let it be known that uh, uh, I was still happy to help in any way. Mindful Man was public domain. It wasn't proprietary. And um, uh, if anybody wants to adapt it or adopt it, Great, go for it. And I got a call from uh, Tony Schmidt and Sean. Well, how about mindful men living? So that's that's where we're at now. That's awesome. And just as a as a expanding on your the evolution from transcendental meditation to where you're at today, your movement into the into the Buddhist realm was pretty significant. Can you can you talk about how you made that transition as well? Sure, yeah. Um, so a, a few different threads, I won't go into all of them, but um, I, I had long realized that it really only took a few weeks of meditating every day when I was 17 years old to see that there was something to it. Mm -hmm. um, so I kept meditating in the TM style, which in some ways isn't actually that different than the mindfulness meditation, it uses a mantra instead of the breath and a few details like that. But I wanted to go deeper. There was something about me that wanted to go deeper. And my last uh, stop in my uh, use of uh, alcohol and drugs was 
I wanted to um, use acid as a way of going deeper to mm -hmm. find, to go into what Aldous Huxley called the antipodes of the mind. Um, so I did that for a while. I was by that time in my, oh, 27, 28, 29 years old. I don't remember exactly. And I realized that wasn't it. Um, that wasn't going to get me where I wanted to go. You know, when you've dropped acid, you might think you're in some extra spiritual place, but, um, and it opens you up to that kind of seeking for sure on a positive note about it. But so I, I realized that I was at a much more subtle level than I was recognizing, um, getting what I was wanting all the time in uh, meditation and I wanted to go deeper. So the 80s, I spent uh, exploring Zen and finally settling in the late 80s. Uh, uh, this was not my has not been my last stop in Buddhism, but settling in the late 80s with Thich Nhat Hanh. Just an incredible, um, it's actually uh, two years since he passed. Yep. Mm -hmm. Just an incredible um, um, teacher of not just... Uh, mindfulness but of engaging our practice of mindfulness in the world so i dived into that and since then i've i've my i've adjusted my practice i have brought elements of uh different uh traditions in um and i it's probably now's not the time to get into this esoteric discussion of yeah the various schools of buddhism but uh um so yeah I, I, but but you did get ordained in his in yeah. his uh, yeah in his yeah practice. i am ordained uh in what's called his order of interbeing right um which is a group that's sometimes called his core practice community but really what it was was Thich Nhat Hanh uh was in vietnam in the early and mid 60s and he's and he refused to take sides in the war but he did uh, gather a group of other people, monastics and lay people, to go out to the villages that were being bombed, napalmed, hmm. and bring relief to the people. Yeah. And that to him is a form of what he calls engaged practice, bringing the practice out into the world, which I felt pretty strongly about. Yeah. And um, so I was ordained into the order. The order of interbeing was developed to support those folks who are going out into the world. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so in 2006, I went to Plum Village in France to be ordained by Thich Nhat Hanh. And that really changed my life. It made me realize that as soon as I was able to retire, and I had this magic spreadsheet that <laughs> where I was keeping track of everything so I'd know how much I'd need and how much my wife and I would need and when I could retire. When I got to that number, um, I told my wife, uh, I'm retiring. I want to engage. I want to live these vows I took. Yeah. Oh, wow. To go into the order of interbeing. That, so that, that, that that's exactly where my mind was going because I wanted to, uh, and we don't need to dwell on this, but I wanted to understand I think this is a struggle that's common for all of us who care about sort of leaving the place better than we found it. But I wanted to understand from the late seventies, early eighties until 2006, when your spreadsheet told you you could stop working, what was the balance? Was all the men's work and the meditation was that like, I'm going to work so that I can have enough money and I'm going to try to make enough time as much time as possible for all that other stuff. 
but I still yeah. got to work. Is that the way? Is that the way you were living life at that at that point? Yeah, yeah. And I think you know a lot of people under a certain age, and unfortunately, a lot of people who get to an age where they should be able to retire but can't. Um, you know, you have to do that. You know, yeah. in a lot of uh, indigenous cultures, there's three stage. Uh, there's considered to be three stages in life: childhood, householder, and elder. And uh, maybe I was a little bit in a rush, but I, <laughs> I really wanted to get past householder. The, the kids were gone, college was paid for, um, and uh, my wife was still working at the time. And um, I wanted to get to elder. I wanted to more um, specifically um, help, you know, in any way I could to make the world uh, uh, even a little bit better. So it's hard. Um, you know, in our prison work, we've got 40 volunteers, only a couple of whom are still working. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, it's just so hard, you know, I mean, I'm, and and that's the time of life. When you're when you're working, you got bills to pay, you've got kids to raise and get through school if that's the route they take. Um, so that was the value of my magic spreadsheet. Was uh, you know, I, I wish I knew how. I wasn't a great spreadsheet jockey. If I could have, <laughs> if I could have uh, programmed the spreadsheet to make a lot of bells and and uh, sounds when I got to that magic number. <laughs> If only you had known Chris. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, he's a freak. He's yeah, freak. it's, not, it's yeah. not. It's not the. It's not the greatest superpower, but yeah. but it yeah. is. It is a passion. Um, I, I I have so many questions. Uh, yeah. I I'm just so fascinated with 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 your life and your sense of purpose and everything else. But we we talked a little bit before about your dad, which is a, we could spend probably a whole other hour on. Um, and then his impact on you. I'm curious how i know you have at least one son who's in san francisco or in the bay area do you have right. is that your only child um i um when i married my um, current wife the kids were uh she had two girls uh and when we got married uh, my my uh, wife and i took our time we'd known each other and been best friends actually for six years uh but when we finally got married uh, uh, the three kids, we always joked about it being the Brady Bunch, mm -hmm. uh, were eight, 10, and 12. And uh, the girls have, or especially the younger one, have no memory of life without me. Okay. Um, and I have very little memory of life without them. So we became a family. They both have active other parents, um, or they all have um, active other parents. Sure. But yeah, so there are three of us. Uh, the, all the kids call each other brother and sister. I consider them my daughters. I'm aware they they have a bio dad also. Yeah, yeah. I I, I mean, but they, they and then they live with you through their childhood. I'm what I I'm curious about is, did they see that their father, the the, the father that lived in their house, in, in the case of your daughters, um, did did your work and this vocational practice of men's work and meditation did did they, did that impact them? I'd like to think so. I think it absolutely impacted my son. Um, and um, the, uh, and, and I think they saw um, that I was committed mm. to growing. 
to doing the best I could given you know what I had on my plate. So yeah, they talk about that now. I mean, they're they're up there in years themselves. They're uh, all our eldest is forty nine and the youngest is um 40 did she just turn 46 um you know and they have lives of their own and yeah i think absolutely especially the eldest uh my my eldest daughter who's a very committed uh social activist and um and uh, i think that yeah i helped encourage uh her to do that as well so um yeah, I, I absolutely think so. And I think there's no substitute for men to, and I was very aware of this after I started men's work in the in the late 70s, there's no substitute for men to be role models for their son. Uh-huh. Even the most loving, involved mother can't do that as well as a loving, uh, involved father can. So yeah, and my son is a wonderful man, uh, very engaged in the world, a very loving father. Um, so I'd like to—I I won't take credit. He did—he did all the work growing up, and uh, as with all kids, it wasn't always easy. But uh, um, yeah, so absolutely, I think um, that was an important part of what I could contribute to the kids. That, that and that's what exactly what I was imagining. Can we go back to the prison thing? Because I think about yeah, I, I, yeah, I'd like yeah. to do that. Yeah, I want to hear yeah. about that. I think of like who could use meditation. I think kids for one, students, etc. But but how did this prison uh, practice start? And there's your dog. Oh, <laughs> ferocious guard dog, six <laughs> people to death. Um, well, I had the, a moment. My wife and I have traveled a lot. And one spring, right after I was ordained, I think the spring after I was ordained in two, 2006, uh, we were driving down, we were avid bicyclists, we were driving down in, I think, March, probably early March down to Texas, um, to uh, get in some early season bicycle uh, riding and training. And when we would take a car trip we'd always uh at some point during the trip we'd always say okay it's time for hopes and dreams um whether and we would share what our hopes and dreams were um and i realized this being not long i was very moved by the ordination i just felt it was without knowing details it was an important part of my life so what came out of my mouth as we were driving, as I recall, we were in Oklahoma, so, wow. <laughs> and um, um, was I? I want to live my vows. I took vows. I took them very seriously, and I wanted to live them. At that point, I hadn't yet figured out what I wanted to do, um, but what evolved was okay. I was a professional communicator. I can communicate and teach well. Um, and uh, I was deeply into mindfulness as a as a way of uh, alleviating suffering or lessening suffering. Uh, so I wanted to teach um, mindfulness. And then I thought, well, wait a second, there's no shortage of, you know, uh, people who look like me teaching mindfulness to people who look like me. There's a lot of folks doing that, some yeah. of them very, very good. Um, so I thought, okay, then, what am I going to, who am I going to teach this to? And it occurred to me, well, let's teach it 
let's try and reach out to marginalized people who otherwise wouldn't necessarily have this opportunity. So my first stop was um, uh, the VA, where I uh, taught mindfulness to combat veterans, mostly Vietnam veterans yeah, uh, with PTSD. And I have to say, you know, they people might come up to them and say, thank you for your service. But other than that, this is a real marginalized group of people, mm -hmm. good, good men and uh, more recently, good women. Yep. Um, but um, very marginalized. Um, this, we live in a society that, among other things, often wants to go to war, but doesn't want to deal with people when they come back. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was real rewarding. I did that for a couple of years. And then I bumped into a friend of mine uh, who was uh, teaching in, in the prison. But she wasn't teaching mindfulness. And she said, I'm thinking of teaching mindfulness. Um uh, you want to come into prison with me? And that was 2009. Um, yeah, 2009. And I did. And uh, it occurred to me, we were doing other programs uh, with prisoners, and it was just mind-blowing. It was uh, as an old druggie. It reminded me of the uh, what we used to say about heroin, the first dose is free. So uh -huh. I went in, and after my first visit in prison, I was, I was there. I wasn't going anywhere else. And a year or two later, I thought, mindfulness. And I found a prison official who I ran a pastor, she said, absolutely, when can you start? And from there, um, it grew into something that's pretty big right now. We're in well over half the Wisconsin prisons uh, with, as I mentioned before, 40 volunteers. And um, uh, the feedback we get, uh, most importantly to me from the, from the prisoners is wonderful. But uh, it's kind of a win-win because the administration likes it too because it calms a lot of, you know, makes the prisoners more mindful, more thoughtful. They're less likely to get into fights and other disruptions. How often do you go? How often do your folks go in, David? Um, it depends on the prison. Every prison is, is different. Um, no less than every other week. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going in. Uh, it depends on the week, but often. Um, uh twice a week uh okay. i'm down to one prison but we're going deep we have a number of other mindfulness related things we're doing in the prison i go into including uh what they now call sud substance abuse or a substance use disorder used mm -hmm. to be called addiction, addiction. recovery so yeah, so yeah 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 uh so i'm doing that we also have uh i go into three other uh people and uh, we have a list of uh, 28 people who want to see us one-on-one -on -one for, mm. you know, to discuss mindfulness, how to live mindfully. Some of them, to be honest, just want to have an intelligent conversation with an adult, uh, yeah. which is hard to come by in, <laughs> for prisoners. Um, so, yeah, I'm happy to talk about the Packers. Or, or <laughs> whatever. And um, but uh, mostly it's mindfulness related. Yeah. And it sounds like there's one component of it where you offer some sort of like one-to-one, -one, almost like peer support slash therapy or whatever. Do you also lead meditations when you go to the prisons? Yeah. Well, one of the main thing we do and what brought us into prison is uh, a group. Um, and um, we now have two groups in this particular prison that I go into, one in what's called general population in one in uh, the solitary confinement unit. And um, 
Um, and uh, it's real interesting what we do. I could go on and on about that. Sorry if I've been going on. No, on, no. But no, 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 no. I'm curious. Um, we, um, I'm a big believer in what's called circle process. Um, so we sit in a circle. We start with a meditation just to get them grounded. And also because of the nature of prison, there's often new people. And this is a way of giving them some instruction about how to meditate. And then we have a check-in, what's going on in your heart right now. Um, and then uh, we'll raise a topic related to mindfulness. It might be a mechanical topic. Why do we focus on the body so much? Um, what's your feelings about your own body? That sort of thing. Often it's an awareness topic. Um, um, uh, one of my favorite questions to ask them is, what mask are you wearing right now? Oh. And what would it mean to you if you dropped that mask, if you took that mask off? And that's a question that arises uh, out of uh, um, mindful awareness. Because the more we practice, the more we know ourselves, and the more we realize that we, you know, it's a human, it's human nature. Uh, we wear masks. I'm this person. I'm that person. Um, in the case of these guys, most of whom grew up on the streets, it's, you know, I'm the toughest guy in town, you know, uh, I hear over and over again, the, you mess with me, I'll mess you up, you know, um, I don't care what happens, kill me, I, I'm going to die young anyway, you know, and that's a mask they wear. And when they can take off that mask, then they'll say amazing things like, you know, I was never loved. Wow. I want to be loved. I want to be taken seriously. Um, so, um, the guys all share that and they come to realize, I used the word normalize before they come to realize that they all wanted things that they weren't getting. I think even us middle-class white guys could say the same thing. Right. And, um, but they come to realize they're not bad because, or they're not weak because they want to be cared for. They want to be taken seriously. Um, so we, we go around for an hour or so and do that, you know, have that discussion. And the wonderful thing about circle process is that the circle becomes its own entity. It's like if there are 12 guys in the group, the circle itself is the 13th uh, guy. And uh, the most successful sessions we have is where the uh, volunteer facilitators just sit back and let the guys teach each other. And yeah. it's really a, a, an amazing, powerful thing. And these guys, stop me if I'm going on too much, but um, these guys um, come to some amazing places. I'm working with three or four different guys who are in, uh, lifers. And in Wisconsin, the way you become a lifer is to have killed somebody. And they'll say things to me like, um, um, I need I, I need to live the rest of my life, you know, which could be another 40 years in prison. I need to live the rest of my life with integrity to, to be my best self. And we also teach them that probably 99% of the people on the outside could have the same aspiration. <laughs> mm. So it's very, very powerful stuff. And um uh, um, do you do you stay connected to any of the um i assume it's just men that you're working with i don't know if that's true uh, uh we go our group goes into one women's prison i don't go in but uh, yeah the the do you stay connected to any of these men when they leave prison 
Well, that's a that's a heartbreak because we're not allowed to. Okay. Uh, you can okay. see prisoners on the inside, or but if you go in, you can't see any any prisoners on the outside. So they had these groups. They had these groups in this meditation guidance facilitation, and likely could benefit from it when they leave. But but there's nothing for them. Well, as it relates to what you guys are doing uh, when they leave on the outside, yeah, and that's yeah. that's a heartbreak. I keep thinking, well, where should our group? Our group is called the Wisconsin Prison Mindfulness Initiative. And I said, and I'm always thinking, where can this group go next? Yeah. And it would be post-release support, because to be honest, the state makes it real hard for them to succeed. Right. Uh, it's hard for them to uh, get jobs. Um, it's hard for them to get psychological, emotional support. Um, and uh, it's just real hard. There's a lot of obstacles and um you know they they pee in a cup and uh, there's a trace of of uh, uh marijuana uh and they can be thrown back into prison for some period of time not because they did a horrible thing but because um they had uh, smoked a joint with a friend Jeez. so i'd love to be able to give them more support yeah i wonder if that is unique to wisconsin if that uh that regulation is like if you were operating in uh illinois if you would be allowed to maintain some access because like they could go find another circle but wouldn't it be easier and more there'd be better continuity if they could just keep sort of the parts of their circle that they had absolutely well, yeah particularly with guides that they were comfortable with that they yeah. had a relationship with for sure yeah. and developed some trust with um yeah. for sure uh things or, that were probably lacking in their or, lives up to that point or yeah. even more impactful like you could exponentialize these things because i'm sure some of these guys would be perfect candidates to go back into prisons to work with other you know once out if they could go back in and work with prisoners who are currently in in, in you know incarcerated and a anyway, few of them have absolutely yeah mostly they're just struggling to survive on the outside yeah. you yeah. know uh they're lucky if they get a job. Uh, one guy I know I heard from a, a friend of his who I see inside, he got a, a job at Walmart. And that's about as, you know, uh, a job as um, they can get. And of course, a, a big issue when they get out is not falling back into the old patterns, not falling, not going back to the guys who sure. led them, you know, who they went astray with, but you know, uh, yeah. uh, cutting their own way through life and right, right. It's tempting, you know, anybody who's had, uh, substance issues knows that, oh, you know, you meet, uh, you meet up with an old buddy and they say, let's just, eh, one won't hurt you yeah. or two or three. Right. <laughs> yeah. If you have addiction problems, it does, but, yeah. uh, um, yeah, I, it, that's a heartbreaking part of it. There are some organizations that do help recently released folks, um, but not enough. Yeah, yeah. And then we wonder about recidivism and, and you know, exactly. it's crazy. Yeah. Um, fellas, I uh, don't have long. I'm going to have to hop. Yeah, and, yeah. And, we uh, I, and we I, need to I, close out. 
Yeah. And so, so David, we, um, if you, if you haven't listened to the, the show before, we ask uh, our guests three canned questions at the end, which we okay. would love to pose to you. Um, some of which we've heard you touch on already, but the first yeah. is, um, what do you wish you could have told your 10 year old self? That I wasn't, um, I wish I could have told my 10 year old self that I was, <laughs> This might sound funny, but that I was normal. Mm. I didn't. I didn't feel normal coming out of a, you know, having all this incredible violence rolling around in the back of my mind that I had no idea where it came from. I was never struck as a child, other than you know the occasional boyhood fights with my peers. Um, that you're normal. That you're good. Um, it took a while, and it was the pain related that was partly about that that led me to uh, uh, want to be high all the time. Yeah, I think there's probably more than a few 10-year-olds who could stand to hear that message, um, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Next question, David, is um, do you have a mantra in life or even a mantra these days? Um. Well, to clarify, one method of meditating is to repeat a mantra. Right. Uh, that I, That's not how I meditate, but I actually do have a mantra, uh, something I repeat to myself often. And what that uh, mantra, to use that phrase, is, is just this. Because when things get difficult, what happens? You know, we feel physical pain, we feel emotional pain. So there's in 12 step, there's a saying, you know, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Mm. So the pain is the emotional pain, the physical pain, whatever you have, that's pain. Uh, there's no denying it, there's no pushing it aside or sweeping it under the rug. But then we add on all these stories. Whoa, woe is me, why me? Life is unfair. That person really screwed me around and, and blah, blah, blah. You, you know the stories mm -hmm. I'm talking about. We all tell them. So when I say to myself, just, and I'm a classic horribleizer, uh, horribleizer I will take <laughs> this, the scantest reason and turn it into some horrible cataclysm that has yet to occur. So uh, when I say to myself, just this, it's okay the pain or the fear or whatever it is that's up with me, that's real. But that's all that's real. <laughs> yeah. Just this, not all those other stories. And in large part, mindfulness is uh, train, tra training ourselves to separate out the stories, the add-ons from what's real in this moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I love that. And I love that you've come up with a name for yourself if you ever decide to join big time wrestling. You're you'd be David the Horribleizer Haskin. I've never heard that word. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, last question um is what do you hope that people will say about you at your wake? Oh. I'd be lying if I didn't say I think about that all the time. I've had some health issues and I'm okay. I have a fair chance of living a normal lifespan now, but uh, hmm, it's hard to, it's hard to answer that question without seeming egotistical, but um, um, what I really have aspired to, and I hope someone remembers um, after I die is 
he tried to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And, and um, then uh, in that car ride I mentioned before, uh, I told my wife, I just want to, you know, when I die, I just want to, if I could have helped one person. Um, and um, so I, I would hope people would um, say that he tried to make the world a better place. And I think um, if we all do that, when we're able, um, the world will be a better place. I mean, let's face it, the world's pretty screwed up now in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But if we all try to find that peace in our hearts and and express that peace in action, then um, I think um, I think uh, the world will be a better place. So that's, I, if I'm going to be remembered, that I think yeah. that's what I'd most like to be remembered for. I've known you for an hour and I've never been more convinced that you will, that those words will be spoken at your wake. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Thank, you. Thank you. And I, uh, I look forward to joining you guys on one of your next, uh, or maybe several of your next meditation retreats. Yeah, we, uh, we hope to have you right. Yeah, for sure. Well, we have a date for the next one. I forget. June, six, June 6th through the 9th. Yep. Okay. Put it up, put it on your calendar. I'm gonna go look right now. Yeah, put it on your calendar. David, uh always a pleasure to see you. Yeah. Um good to look see forward you, to seeing you again soon. Yeah, and wonderful to meet you, Chris. Same, David. Uh I, I can't wait to meet in person and it was a real treat. Thank you. This is Chris. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of If You've Come This Far. And this is Sean. Remember to check us out, mnliving.org.